calling 1-800-439-5732 or online at kpfa.org. And thanks for everything. You are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFC up in Fresno, and on the World Wide Web at kpfa.org. It's 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is July the 27th, 2010. Uh, Philip works so hard to raise money during the uh, fundraisers marathon, and I do such a lousy job. I do hope <laughs> that a few of you will call in while I'm on the air so as not to shame me completely. You know the numbers. 1-800-439-5732. Hey, KPFA, I've got a book. The... um. The New Biography of Our President by David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker. And uh, you can have this book if you subscribe to KPFA at the $150 rate. So I'm just putting that out and I want to read you a little bit of it. Some little wonderful bits about the... Um, the woman, an ex-slave who worked for Mary Todd Lincoln in the White House. There's some wonderful stuff here about, uh, what is it, uh, the presidency, the institution of the presidency. So much Americana there. Uh, Philip was talking about our beginnings here, you know, the old days when uh, the station was founded back in 1949 by Lou Hill, who was a conscientious objector. Something different, yes. Uh, we go all the way back to, what is it, the years after World War II. To be a conscientious objector during World War II, that was heavy duty. I thought about that hard late last night. Oh, no, it was early this morning, four o'clock. I'd been listening to all this buzz, buzz, buzz about the... uh Declassified reports on the war in Afghanistan. I wonder what President Abe Lincoln would have to say. Oh, yes. Oh, dear, dear, deja vu all over again. Six years of war crimes. I love that. A war crime. Isn't that redundant? Or that's a misnomer, right? I mean, if you believe that war is a crime in the first place, somebody somewhere said that... Anything done 
in a war is by definition a crime in peacetime. Yeah, I got it. Uh Uh-huh. It's all semantics. Oh, the line between crime and war is completely blurred. Have you noticed that? Uh, You know, do we try these people in a military court? Do we try them in a regular court where they have uh, citizens' rights, blah, blah. Uh, I call it the crimescape. The distinction, say, between the police and the soldiers is almost lost. Have you noticed what's going on in Mexico? They let the prisoners out to do the shooting, put them back in prison after. (laughs) This so-called war on terror. <laughs> I I just can't believe the language we use. It's worse than Orwellian. Uh we don't have um a particular nation state to call the enemy, but that didn't stop George Bush, you know. He just picked out the one he wanted, which was Iraq. Uh basically, you know, they had an excuse of sorts for Afghanistan, but they don't have that anymore. But Iraq was the one he wanted to tackle, uh, and if this goes on, all this axis of evil stuff um, around, it's it's so complicated, I'm afraid that we don't know what we don't know. The known unknowns are going to do us in, the oil states, uh, all the old paradigms. I think of the days, you remember when One nation used to surrender to another on the ship at sea or something. (laughs) World War II, national leaders handing over their swords. Even even civil wars used to be won or lost, remember. General Lee surrendering his sword and the South went dark, all that stuff. Uh, A lot of grandeur. Yes, I love the grandeur, but uh, it was pretty tacky even then. I... Couldn't help it. I I just thought of the uh, tome. I'm not going to read it. I don't know who's going to read it. This, what is it? Six years of BS. Uh, all of the things done in Afghanistan. Uh, apparently, it does prove one thing, and that is that we got ourselves in a hole that we cannot dig our way out of. I dug up my favorite uh my favorite play about history, Henry V, Henry V, by old Willie Shakespeare. Or maybe it's by the Earl of Oxford. We can argue about that some other day. Anyway, uh, I just can't help it. I need to read you one passage from Act 4, Scene 1. Just to prove to you that human nature is always a constant. History doesn't repeat itself. But the people always do. In Henry V, there's this great scene where Henry the monarch, he wanders around among his soldiers. And uh, he's trying to figure out, you know, how they feel before the battle. He's got a, a kind of a cloak, a hood on. He pretends, he pretends to be, you know, um, an officer. Earlier, we see these guys posing, you know. Uh, <laughs> my favorite line is, yes, are you an officer or art thou base, common and popular? Anyway, that's somebody else. That's uh, Llewellyn. But the 
the bit here is the bit where the men speak about their, let's say, their responsibilities, their uh, ethical feelings about the king. Uh, now, Henry, pretending to be uh, just an officer, says that uh, uh, they should all be glad to die in the king's company because his cause is just and his quarrel honorable. All honorable men, yes. Soldier Will says, that's more than we know. Bates, another soldier, says, I, or more than we should seek after, for we know enough if we know we are the king's subjects. If his cause be wrong, our obedience to the king wipes the crime of it out of us. Yes, I died for my country, country right or wrong. Jean goes on and soldier Will says, But if the cause be not good, the king himself hath a heavy reckoning to make when all those legs and arms and heads chopped off in a battle shall join together at the latter day and cry all we died at such and such a place some swearing some calling for a surgeon some upon their wives left poor behind them some upon the debts they owe some upon their children rawly left I am afeard there are few die well that die in a battle. How can they charitably dispose of anything when blood is their argument? Now, if these men do not die well, it will be a black matter for the king that led them to it. Yes, indeed, I love to type these things up and mail them off to George Bush in the old days. Of course, now there's another fellow. Another fellow has the job, and uh, I'm sure that uh, he takes his burden seriously, but I don't see much evidence that he's, well, I guess he's trying. I don't know. It seems to be a situation, a no-win situation, um, I suppose. After all, um, uh, the play, Henry V, that's about monarchy, and we don't live in monarchy. I mean, uh, you know, in a democracy, citizens have a right to dissent, even members of the military. At least they can be conscientious objectors, but, of course, once they take the oath... Um, we have what we call a volunteer army now. Some say it's a poverty draft. Vietnam was different to many middle class men. Yes, that was back when the draft, yes, got to people that, <laughs> that wanted to argue. I think I see ancient Rome looming in my mind. Uh, 
It's a very sad question here. Uh, I'm not sure uh, where we're going with all this. I was reading something last night, more and more about the women and Islam and the women and so forth and so on. And I'm going to have to go into that much more deeply. I, I just can't believe that uh, it's a good idea for women to live uh, with burqas and things, but obviously (laughs) religious freedom is not what I thought. It's all pretty darn complicated. What I have today, well, I guess, I guess I need to read you a little bit of David Remnick's The Bridge in the hope that some of you really want this book and that you're willing to subscribe to KPFA in order to get a copy Um, The title, The Bridge, refers to the civil rights movement back in what he calls the Moses generation, the generation of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and all those good guys, most of them, well, all of them assassinated. The bridge from that generation to uh, Barack's generation, the generation of my children, exactly the same, yes, the dates, 1961, Obama was born. And so, of course, his life experience is much different, but he's certainly a man with plenty of imagination, and he certainly knows uh, whereof he speaks, where he comes from, although (laughs) I love the bits where his wife says that she thought Hawaii was a place where white people went on vacation, and of course, it's where Barack grew up where he went to high school uh, and I think we're going to hear much more about Barack Obama's uh, what is it uh, his uh, lifestyle his psychology let's face it uh, he was basically raised by his grandfather uh, World War II guy from Kansas right and uh, his grandmother too let's see she was uh, I'm skipping between the generations. His mother died so young in her early 50s. Uh, Anyway, I read you a few bits from this book. The political parts are all so familiar to us. And if you have read the autobiographies of Barack Obama, you know a lot of this stuff. Uh, He did a wonderful job on his first autobiography, Dreams of My Father, for my father. He... He was doing that, um, what is it, the search for the missing parent bit. And, uh, of course, the parent that he really needs to search for, I think he's found her, is his mom. But I think he's come to understand her and what her life meant. Uh, Although she did say that uh, when he wrote the first autobiography, uh, he, he thought she was a little naive. She didn't think she was quite that uh, well you know how that is white folks you know (laughs) even if it's your mother she's got to be uh, uh, just a little bit innocent Uh, anyway I think today what would be fun to read to you in the hope that maybe you want to get a copy of this book especially if you're a school teacher or if you want to share it with your kids this is a big big fat book it's uh Oh, pounds of just material. Uh, I like the chapter 17 about the White House and about 
the slaves that built the White House. And one in particular that I didn't know, I didn't know anything about this woman that um, was a dressmaker. She was someone who was uh, the close friend uh, of Mary Todd Lincoln. And uh, she was not a slave when she worked for Mrs. Lincoln, but she began life as a slave. Abraham and Mary Todd Lincoln had no slaves in the White House. Uh, it's interesting. I'm sure you know that uh, 12 of our presidents did own slaves. Eight of them, while they were in office, the, the uh, first inhabitant of the White House, right? That would be John and Abigail Adams. I hope you had a chance to see some of that series about John and Abigail Adams. It's the best Americana that we've had on our television for years. Uh, you remember that uh, recent series, John and Abigail Adams. Uh, they were very, very strict. They had only two servants, a white farm couple, and of course they were laughed at. <laughs> you know, people mocked the food, the housekeeping, the hospitality, that sort of thing, because they were not puritanical, but they didn't want slaves in, in the house. Uh, Madison's slaves were famous. One was called Paul Jennings. He wrote a uh, uh, reminiscence, interesting one, uh, Oh, the stories here. It's so interesting because most people have what I would call uh, movie visions of what slavery was like. Paul Jennings worked for Madison until he died. And, uh, well, no, wait a minute. Let's see. Until Madison died. He took part in abolitionist plots to free the slaves. He worked for Daniel Webster, from whom he bought his freedom. He served in the Department of the Interior after uh, he was a freedman. Now, nearly all of the hundreds of slaves in service at the White House did work. Um, well, they died in anonymity. They, they were just um, uh, servants. They wrote no uh, memoirs, and there's a, hardly a trace of them in the archives. Andrew Jackson brought his slaves to Washington, D.C. There was a body servant who shared his bedroom in the White House. Mm -hmm. James Polk bought slaves during his presidency. On July 20th, 1846, he paid $1,436 for his slave Hartwell and his wife and her child nine years old <laughs> in the 1850s slaves were eliminated from the White House staff but not because of any doubts about the morality of chattel slavery but rather because James Buchanan thought white British servants would better preserve his quote daily privacy, whatever that means. Anyway, the story about um, Elizabeth Keckley, K-E-C-K-L-E-Y, is the one I like best. She was the dressmaker for Mary Todd Lincoln, and uh, she'd had a pretty rough life, but uh, 
There's a lovely bit here. After little Willie died, the uh, the beloved son of Abraham Lincoln and uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, Mrs. Lincoln seemed to go off her head. Ah, uh, oh, yes, she actually she had she had been in the habit of asking Elizabeth, uh, her servant, to come and visit her even when she didn't need dressmaking. Uh, she's a sort of she's a sort of friend, she said, uh, who well when she she spilled coffee on a dress and uh Elizabeth uh made her a new one on the spot. But this little bit here, uh when eleven year old Willie died, uh Lincoln said, my poor boy, he was too good for this earth. God has called him home. And Elizabeth assisted in washing and dressing the little boy and laid him out on the bed. Uh, She describes Abraham Lincoln sobbing as he spoke, his head buried in his hands and his tall frame convulsed with emotion. She watches, crying. She said his grief unnerved him made him a weak, passive child. I did not dream that his rugged nature could be so moved. I shall never forget those solemn moments, genius and greatness, weeping over love's idol lost. Mrs. Lincoln was even more overcome than her husband. And in a scene of gothic strangeness, Elizabeth Keckley, the dressmaker to Mary Todd Lincoln, ex-slave, writes that in one of her paroxysms of grief, the president kindly bent over his wife, took her by the arm, and gently led her to the window. With a stately, solemn gesture, he pointed to the lunatic asylum. Mother, do you see that large white building on the hill yonder? Try and control your grief, or it will drive you mad, and we may have to send you there. Now, Elizabeth Keckley had a kind of access to the private lives of the Lincolns that were denied to many of his aides and friends. Uh, there's no end to the disturbing proximity of their relationship, the closeness between master and servant, and the contradictory moral universe that allowed the greatest leader in his nation's history to consider repatriating blacks to Africa. He considered them the physical and mental inferior of the white man, yet he trusted a woman who was born a slave. She was an intimate a witness uh, when Lincoln was shot at Ford's Theater. He died on April 15th, 1865. Keckley was summoned at once to the White House where she was taken to a darkened room where Mrs. Lincoln was tossing uneasily about upon a bed. She then went to the guest room where the president lay in state. When I crossed the threshold of the room, she writes, I could not help recalling the day on which I had seen little Willie lying in his coffin where the body of his father now lay. 
The cabinet members were there, dignitaries milled around. They made room for me, she writes, and approaching the body, I lifted the white cloth from the white face of the man that I had worshipped as an idol, looked upon as a demigod. After paying her respects to Lincoln, she returned to her charge, carrying out the duties she knew were expected of her. She says, I shall never forget the scene, the wails of a broken heart, the unearthly shrieks, the terrible convulsions, the wild, tempestuous outbursts of grief from the soul. I bathed Mrs. Lincoln's head with cold water and soothed the terrible tornado as best I could. Now, the tragedy of this woman, Elizabeth Keckley, was that a serious person, a woman who not only served the First Lady but ran a successful business, created a Freed People's Relief Society in Washington, even played a small role in bringing both Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth to the White House for conversations with President Lincoln, was met with such vicious mockery in 1868 when she published her memoir. Just the year before, Mrs. Lincoln, who'd been living in a modest Chicago hotel and was desperate for money, had arranged to meet Keckley in New York to ask her to help sell her old gowns and jewelry. Disdained by many whites as an imperious provincial, Mrs. Lincoln could rely on her as on no one else. But after the book appeared, Elizabeth Keckley was branded a, quote, traitorous eavesdropper in the press. A burlesque was produced entitled Behind the Seams by a, they use the N-word, woman, who took in work from Mrs. Lincoln and Mrs. Davis. That would be Mrs. Jefferson Davis, by the way. <laughs> Jefferson Davis being the leader of the Confederacy. Elizabeth had violated the codes of her era and threw a sense of fear into the slave-owning and servant-possessing classes. One reviewer wrote, Where will it end? What family of eminence that employs a Negro is safe from such desecration? Okay, Mrs. Lincoln denounced the book, right? She cut off the seamstress she had once called her best and kindest friend. In a letter to the New York citizen, Elizabeth Keckley asked if she were being denounced because, quote, my skin is dark. Was she not free to speak and write as a free woman? Toward the end of her life, she worked at Wilberforce University in Ohio. She died in 1907 at the age of 89. Okay, this wonderful story goes on. This is a terrific, terrific stuff. The most intimate African-American observer of the Lincoln White House, right? Um, now, this this bit, this chapter on the White House goes on to describe the uh, the visits of, well, the people like Frederick Douglass, the ones that <clears throat> we read about in all the official books. Frankly, I find it much more interesting to find out uh, the personal, intimate details of family life, Um what was going on in what I guess we still call the woman's world. Uh, anyway, um, this chapter, chapter 17, 
is followed by a beautiful epilogue that I had planned to read you to close my reading today in the hopes that some of you would want to call in and get this book. It would require a $150 subscription to KPFA. And uh, it's a big, thick, what is it, uh, $30 book. It's David Remnick's biography of Barack Obama, The Life and Rise. It is mostly a history book. It's all about uh, how it came to be that the Moses generation made possible the generation that is now resident in the White House. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air uh, next Tuesday at this time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Mark Danner says Andrew Basevich delivers precisely what the Republic has so desperately needed, an analysis of America's woes that gets at the heart of delusions that have crippled the country's foreign policy. Bill Moyer says bluntly, Basevich speaks truth to power, no matter who's in power, which may be why those of both left and right listen to him. Here's your chance. The best-selling author of The Limits of Power will be here with his new book, Washington Rules, America's Path to Permanent War. Friday, August 13th, 7.30 p.m. at the Hillside Club, 2886 Cedar Street in Berkeley. There is wheelchair access. Advanced tickets for this KPFA benefit are $10 at independent bookstores or through brownpapertickets.com. Please find full information on kpfa.org. For Andrew Basevich. August 13th.